0: So we're going through this series called Fighting for Joy, and we're, we're relating the fight for joy in the gospel to the four marks of spiritual substance we talked about in the fall of last year, the mind of Christ, self-sacrificial love, virtuous freedom, and keeping in step with the Spirit. Do you remember the two verses that we memorized? All right. First Thessalonians... 516, don't wait for the head of the class, people to say it. Say it at the same time, right? Which is, be joyful always. So good. So good. And then, what's another the one? Loud, loud. Romans 12, 12a, and it says, be joyful in hope. Great. So good. You guys are so good. It's like the mob way of doing it. Okay, great. Okay, so. One of the things to notice about these verses Oops, I don't know if I did that or not Um, One of the things to notice about these verses Is that they're both commands Right? Be joyful always Be joyful in hope And one of the things that we're going to have to deal with Is the fact that That's difficult for us to hear Because normally we think of joy as a feeling like happiness, and it's hard to make yourself have feelings. It's not nearly as hard as we think it is, but it, we tend to think it's hard. And um, But whenever there's command, one of the things that's helpful to recognize is that commands are also in a, in a way promises. This is what I mean by that. If you, if you think about like the Ten Commandments, for example, right? the people are coming to be God's people, right? And Um, So God says, okay, this is how it's going to go, right? And so he he does a bunch of things to make the covenant, and then he gives them these commands. And one of the commands, for example, is, is you will not steal, right? Now that's, now that sentence actually has two meanings, right? You will not steal. The first is the, is the commandment emphasis, right? Which is like, don't steal, right? Don't be stealing. (laughs) But there's another meaning, which is this. If you really become the people of God— you won't steal. You will not steal. Right? And that's really true of every commandment. Everything God says, don't do this, bears the promise, when you become the people of God, when you grow up into real spiritual substance, when faith produces maturity, you will not steal. You will not commit adultery. You will not be full of envy and hatred. You will not lie about your neighbor. You will not do any of those things, and you will do all these goods. You will be joyful in hope, and you will be joyful always, and you will be patient in affliction. And these are commands, and they're also promises spoken over us in the gospel. Right? But there are things that we have to grow up into in spiritual substance, right? We have to become mature, right? Right? And so the question that we end up asking ourselves is like how do you do that? Right? How do you how do you make yourself feel whole but cheer? How do you? Because essentially what this means is that the command points to a virtue and the virtue points to a reality of character, right? Don't steal, we become the kind of person strong enough not to take what's not ours. And then we don't steal. Joy is similar, right? You, joy isn't just an emotion, joy is the strength To be joyful in the right actions of joy Which would be something like cheerfulness And also the emotion That goes along with it Which would be something like happiness or joy Right And so we talked about this for, for a few weeks That for a lot of Especially the crowning virtues Like faith, hope Love, joy they're, they're very difficult to go after Right directly You'll be like, well I just don't have any hope right now And like that's completely understandable One of the reasons why so many Americans I think are, are increasingly depressed Is because we don't actually know how to be happy anymore Right? And what happens is a lot of the things like happiness, love you, you actually There are lesser, more foundational virtues On which those other things sit And if you try to be loving Without, for example, having the virtue of perseverance Right? If you're too weak to stick with something, you can't love anybody, right? If you don't have self-control, if you can't keep yourself from doing stuff, well, then you can't keep from gossiping about the friend that you're supposed to be loving, right? So you can't love them. And so what what the Bible says is you have to start with faith, right God always says, you've got to start with faith. You've got to trust in Jesus, and then you got to do what Jesus says, and you start with these foundational things like, in in Romans 5, it's embracing or trying to rejoice in your suffering. Right? Because if you can do that in faith, you can like, you can start to, to, to stick with it and you can persevere. But if you persevere, you become stronger. Right? And if you become stronger, you won't go crazy when it hurts. Like most people, they hurt a little bit and they just flip out. And they do destructive things and they start hurting people. But see, if you've got perseverance, you can get hurt and you can be like, okay, wait, what's going on? Right, And what you can do is, while you're getting hurt And that hurt is in your gaze You can elevate your gaze above the hurt In hope And see something worth persevering through the thing for And you become Then hope makes you even stronger Right? And then hope leads to Undisappointment, right? Like if you read Romans 5, it says Which leads to hope And hope doesn't disappoint Right? Well, what is is a maximally undisappointed person? Right? Happy, right? Joyful, right? You see how these things build. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 3, 3 and following, especially in verse 5, says the same thing, right? Everything comes from the knowledge of the one who called us, it says in verse 3. But then it says, now add to your faith goodness. Don't try to be happy right now. Just add to your faith. Do the go- whatever the good is right in front of you. Just try to do something that's good and right. That's it. Don't worry about being happy. Just do something good and Right? And that's going to teach you something. You can learn something from what happens, and you'll get knowledge. Right? And then you'll be like, I think I can, like, I think I can self-regulate enough to, like, do the right thing. And then you'll get self-control. And then you'll be able to do self-control longer and longer and longer, and you'll have perseverance. And then an enormous amount of personal strength will be rising in you, stronger than whatever is depressing you right? And all of a sudden you'll feel yourself rising above the thing that was making you horrifically unhappy. And then, right, you'll be, start to become like God. And listen, one of the things about Jesus is Jesus was very happy. Right? He was full of joy. People were, people were always angry about how, like, how great he was at a party, and how he just enjoyed everybody around him, enjoyed everything that was in front of him. They were like, he's a glutton and a drunkard, right? It's just stupid. was just happy. That's called happiness. Okay? And then, that led to, that godliness leads to the ability to love other people. Like in just brotherly kindness, you'll become a more cheerful and kind person. And then you'll sort out how to love somebody. Does that make sense? You start to approach love. You try to be, I'm going to be a really, really loving person. You're going to feel like a big failure in about 20 minutes because all the old passions are going to rise up and angers and greeds and lusts. And you will be like, oh, and you're going to do something really unloving and you're going to be a big failure. Just don't even try. Just start with Add in your faith some good and just do some good and see then if you can learn from it. You see how this works? Because if you try to just do it all at once, that's really not what Jesus wants. That's not what God commanded, right? So if you were to pile this up into like, you know, the secret formula of pursuing godliness, it would be something like this. And it's remarkably the four marks of substance of right? One is, you would believe Jesus, and I don't just mean, like, I believe in Jesus, so I don't go to hell. I mean, like, you would take the Jesus that is there, right, in his life, death, and resurrection, shown in the gospel, inscripturated in the Bible, and you would believe in the whole of him. Not just the stuff you like that he said, but the stuff that he said that you like in his company, and the stuff that annoys the heck out of you, and you take the whole Jesus together. You need the complex Jesus, or it's not going to work, okay? So you believe Jesus, and then you say, okay, believing in this Jesus, what does this Jesus say is the good that's right in front of me, and you do that. That's called courage, but not—it's a certain kind of courage. It's a courage to do the good, which is called nobility, right? So you choose the noble, right? And then you don't let yourself get distracted on the big stuff that's far away that's clamoring for your attention. You focus on the thing that is right in front of you, the near, the small, the humble, That's what you start with. You could say that's the opposite of the advocacy fallacy. Like, I'm going to take out my phone and I'm going to tweet the end of world slavery, right? And then you're like mean to your roommate, right? The advocacy fallacy isn't you shouldn't advocate for anything. You should just be nice to the person right in front of you. The advocacy fallacy is when you do advocacy, you think that that absolves you from doing the thing that's right in front of you, which is even more important, Right? One of the reasons we have to do advocacy in the world is because everybody isn't doing the thing that's right in front of them. Right? And so what that ends up doing is it begins up ordering virtue in such a way as it builds into our character. Because remember, the goal of Jesus—we talked about this when we did this week that in the fall— the goal of Jesus is to create a people who can do all the good that he wants done in the world in an eternity with no rules— you know, that's, cr- that's crazy. Like, if that, it was not, that was not Jesus' plan. If somebody said that, like, if I was like in the Miss America pageant and I was like, I know, it's, here's what we're going to have. We're going to have world peace with no rules. It's going to be like Amsterdam. You know, like, you would be like, that person's nuts, right? Clinically insane. But yet, like, this is Jesus' plan, right? And it's really ambitious because God's plan for the Israelites was, was less ambitious, right? Like God's plan for the Israelites is, okay, we're going to gather these people together and we're going to give them a law, but no what? A law, but no king, right? There's no executive. Nobody has a sword to make you do it, right? You just have to be good. I'll tell you what to do. Here's the law. But there's nobody there to make you do it. You have to actually make each other do it. Right? There's judges to say, oh, that was wrong. Oh, that was right. But there's no king, right? And that didn't go very well. And so Jesus takes that equation and he ups it by like a factor of 25. And he's like, okay, we're going to amp this sucker up. We're going to have a people that do the good all the time from the heart with not just no king, but no rules. Right? Right? I mean, Galatians 5, 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And you're like, well, Nick, that's probably freedom from sin. It's not. Read the the Bible. Okay, the context of Galatians 5 is from the law. He says, Jesus died to set you free. Not for another end. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That is, the end of the freedom is freedom. Do you understand? Do you understand? And the freedom is not freedom from sin. It is, of course, freedom from sin too. That's Romans and all other places in the Bible. But in this context, it's freedom from the law. That is that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, is taking away all the rules. And the reason he's taking away all the rules is because rules always keep people from doing good things, right? They limit bad things, but they also keep people from doing good things, right? They create all kinds of unnecessary hope—well, necessary constraints if people are evil. But if people were good, then rules would only be liabilities, right? Rules in heaven would be only liabilities. Do you understand? And rules in hell wouldn't keep any good from happening. Now, if we realize that, then one of the things that that points us to is the fact that this is why what God is trying to create in human beings through faith is virtue. That is godliness from the heart. And one of the, one of the issues, okay, wait, if we're trying to make a people, like what's the only way to make a people who are maximally good with no rules without the need of a king? Of course, Jesus is king, but he's making a people who will do the good without need of a king or rules. How could you possibly do that? Right, and the answer is something like you would, you would change their character— so that they were good from the heart. But how would they know what the good is? How would they know what the loving thing is? How would they know what the joyful thing is? How would they know how to orient that character? And the answer is meaning, right? The maximally good creature would know the meaning of everything. They would know who they are. They would know what creation is. They would know what God is. They would know what what everything is. And they would know the meaning of everything, in their relations, and so they would always know what the good is. And because they know that that's the real meaning of the thing, they would want to do the good So the morality problem and the motivation problem are both solved by virtuous character And then that person can have unlimited freedom And live by what it says in Romans is the law of love, right? totally wide open, or the law of the Spirit of life. What does that even mean? What it means is is that a person who is in line with what the meaning of God sees of everything, that is, the mind of the Spirit, right? The person who has the mind of Christ or the mind of the Spirit sees the meaning of everything, the purpose of everything, and loves it, and therefore sees what they must do and wants to do it. Which is why virtuous freedom is completely irreducible when it comes to what it means to be a substantive Christian And it's partly also the reason why human beings are the way we are I mean, think about this Why do people who can have perfectly good books sit in gates at airline, like at airports, and watch CNN? Look, I've I've watched people who have like meaningful reading material or like another human near them and they look at this screen where people bloviate about 30 seconds of news for 16 hours, right? Now, why would we engage? And it's all vanity. It's just, it's just nonsense constantly. It's, I, I, this would be true of all cable news channels, by the way, right? CNN's just the one that's most commonly in airports. It's just this just constant just bloviation of nonsense, none of which happens. nobody ever checks them. Why in God's name do millions of Americans pay attention to this? And almost every American that comes in contact with one feel like they must pay attention to that instead of whatever else they could be doing, right? And the answer is this: If you are a meaning of as a creature, and there's something in front of you saying, "This means this, this means this, this means this, this means this." this, means this, this, means this, this, means this even if it's like garbage heap quality food, you will eat it. Because that's what human beings are. Human beings were created to, to not just bring facts to the earth, but to help the earth come into the meaning of God. To bring out its creative potential and to live in peace and harmony and to live out the character of God in the world That is, to live out creation's meaning in the world And so God created us to be meaning of ours We are like rooted utterly in meaning Think about it this way Why is it that God has one demand of human beings to escape damnation and everything else is covered by grace? Now, some of you are thinking, well Nick The Bible actually says that even faith is a gift So it's all a gift And you're right, little smarty pants But here's the problem Your argument proves too much, right? Because if that was true, then why would faith be the condition of salvation? Why wouldn't everything or nothing be the condition of salvation? Why is faith still a condition of salvation even though all is gift, right? Why not love or joy or hope or something like that? Now, before I said the commands are also promises, right? And I referred to the last six of the Ten Commandments, or the last seven of the Ten Commandments, right? You will not steal. You will not commit adultery. You will not, right? But think about what are the first three commandments, right? I am Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't actually say you won't have any other gods, which is kind of interesting. Which is why I think widening it out to all things in life that want to take our attention is the way that that should be interpreted. You won't make an image or an idol of anything in creation or anything in the heavens. And what's the next one? You won't what? You won't take the Lord's name in vain, right? Which we don't use the word vain, right? And part of the reason for that is we don't want a word in our language that refers to our vanity. Okay? So we have just, like, let that one go, right? Do you remember when I talked a few weeks ago about C.S. Lewis saying that every generation fortifies themselves very strongly against the sins they're not going to commit and leaves themselves wide open to the ones that they're most prone to commit? So, like, in an age like ours, we're, like, really fortified against sexual puritanism, right? But not against, you know, sexual frivolity and fornication, right? And so we're like, yeah, listen, we're— we're totally ready to make sure that we're not sexually puritan. Meanwhile, we're just like awash in licentiousness, right? Vanity's the same way. We're like, I'm so authentic. I'm so like out there, right? We're all fortified against inauthenticity, and w- vanity is just washing over us like an ocean tide, right? We're too, like, we're too authentic. We just let all the crap just pour out into everybody else's life, soiling everything they're trying to enjoy. It's so wonderful, the authenticity. And it's just because our authenticity is so full of vanity that we're just puking our vain authenticity out on everybody. It's horrible, right? Because Lewis is right, man. We fortify ourselves most against the sins we're in no danger of committing. And we don't even want a word for the sins we're most prone to commit. Like, vanity, right? But the, So think about this. Is it—okay, so if you saw me coming out of Chipotle, all right, so let's say I'm coming out of Chipotle, and I'm with a friend, and you hear me say, hey, God, that was a good burrito. All right, that's one option. In another universe, you see me walking out of Chipotle, and I say, man, that was a good F-word burrito. Okay, now which one of those would offend you more? Right? Right? Now, for most of us, our natural emotional reaction would be the second one. But theologically, it ought to be the first by a lot. Because if I say the F word in relationship to the adjectival beauty of my burrito, then I'm being vulgar, right? And vulgarity is not good because it takes away from reverence and therefore takes away the respect other things deserve, right? Vulgarity is not good, right? Right? But if I throw away the name of God and use it vainly, without its intended meaning, I'm saying the meaning of the universe that is this, is this. Which is way worse. Right? Because I'm inverting reality. Now think about this. Why is faith the condition of faith? And it's—look, it's because God cannot remake us as creatures of meaning— if we refuse to be reoriented towards meaning. Right? Faith is essentially reorient—accepting what God says about himself and what he's done and that we needed it. He's—he's making a claim about reality and he's saying, you need to believe this. Right? And he's—he's not being like, hey, I'm right, and you gotta admit I'm right. Like, he's angry. It's just like, look, you can't be real as a creature of meaning, if you don't reorient towards meaning, what's really there and what everything really means. And so if you're going to be, if you won't do that, you will be damned like you will come apart from the inside out. You will become vaporous. You'll become less solid. All your strength will be sapped, and all that makes up your soul. You will lose your soul, and your damnation will just be me stamping it. That's it. But because you're a creature of meaning and you can't ever be anything else, you must reorient to meaning. That God is God. That nothing in creation can be worshipped before him. That his name matters. And therefore, once you settle meaning, you settle morality. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal from each other. Don't hate and envy each other. Let each other rest, etc. Do you see? Right? You, you, could, you could, can't redeem a creature of meaning Without them reorienting towards the truth And God calls that faith So what that means is underlying the book of Ecclesiastes Are at least four assumptions about meaning One is, is that we're meaning creatures The whole book is about Solomon trying to find ultimate meaning, and where is meaning, what means what, and what's meaningless, and what's meaningful, right? The second is that we need both a cosmic meaning and a daily purpose. He talks about what everything means, and he talks about our daily toil and the lot of our life and whether or not we can accept it, Right? And you might be like, oh, yeah, I get that, Nick. I totally get that, like, the daily, right? Okay, but here's the thing. Most Christians don't, because if you're having a conversation with a Christian friend and you say, hey, why—what do you think is the ultimate meaning for why God made you or redeemed you? Most Christians would simply say something like, well, you know, God made me to love me and for me to love him and— um, if you were, you know, reared in the Westminster Confession to know God and enjoy him forever And, like, you would say something like that And, and then you talk a little longer And then the, this Christian who's, like, setting you up for failure would say So how do you feel about your job? Or your parents? And you're like, oh, my parents are so— Or, like, my job there's a bunch of jerks And I just don't really like it I wish I could get in this other business and, But I need to do a degree to do that And I don't know, right? And what we show by how we behave and how we talk and how we feel oftentimes is that though we believe that God gives meaning ultimately and in terms of our daily purpose, the two don't really connect for us because we're still angry that we have to do the laundry again. Do you understand? And when that's true, our ultimate meaning and our daily purpose have gotten disconnected. Right? And so then Solomon basically is teaching, he says, listen, what human beings do, and he's using himself as the example, is we try to come up with the ultimate meaning of everything and then to bleed that down into our daily lives. And he says, that doesn't work. We are not God's. God can do that. God can look at the meaning of everything in the world, everything he's done from beginning to end, see the perfect meaning of everything, and then see the meaning of your life all at once in philosophical purity, right? But we can't do that because we're not gods. We're creatures. And so we have to learn meaning psychologically, not totally philosophically. Like we have to experience a lot of stuff and do things and like learn in different ways than that. And so creatures have to be creatures to enter into their meaning. And so what Solomon says is, if you read this carefully, he says you basically, you have to learn about the meaning of your life from the bottom up. You, you can't know everything there is to know about God. All you can know is that God is. And you can know whatever God has revealed about himself. In the story of history, in creation itself, in the man Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and how that has been inscripturated in the Bible. You can know all of that, but that's not everything. It's not everything. It's not near everything. And so you can know that, but that's all. And then you can, you can live and embrace your lot and your toil. In faith, and in that you can find both virtue and joy, and you can learn how to be free. Let me read a couple passages. If you've got a Bible, open it up. If you're looking at a pew Bible, open to 988. Right? We're half done. I promise. That wasn't the just the introduction. Ecclesiastes <laughs> 3:10 to 14. It says this, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts, in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Do you see that idea? He's put in us this desire for ultimate meaning. We absolutely passionately want to know what we mean. And yet, we can't fathom it from beginning to end. We actually can't know it. Right? And he says, I know, so now he's going to get back to daily purpose. I know there's nothing better for people to do than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. Do you see how he's saying you've got to do it from the bottom up? You can't do it from the top down? And then he says this, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will revere him. You see, if you could figure out the total meaning of everything, as a sinful human being, you would embrace that as a philosophy and you would set aside the personality and being of God. You wouldn't revere God. If you knew everything that God could tell you, you wouldn't actually revere God. There is something about his mystery and his separation and his greatness that is meant to cause us to revere him, and that's fundamentally necessary. And God tells us the limited but clear and important information we need so that through that revelation we would be turned to him and that we would learn to love him as we learn to know him. But then he also says you have to seek satisfaction in your toil, in your daily life, and learn from the bottom up in terms of meaning. And that is the gift of God. In that you can find satisfaction, and in that you can grow in virtue and knowledge. Right? Let me read another passage. Throughout—this is um, chapter 5, verses 18 and following. So, throughout the book, he'll say a lot of things that he sees, that he's surveying, and that at certain points, Solomon will say, this is what I got from it. Right, So a lot of stuff he'll say he doesn't mean is literally true He's saying, I saw all this stuff and this is how I felt about it And then he'll get down a ways and i will say this is, so, and, then, and then I realized this was the significance of it Right, So this is one of those places This is what I observed to be good That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun During the few days of their life that God has given them For this is their lot Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions And the ability to enjoy them To accept their lot And to be happy in their toil Okay, so notice The ability to enjoy them is what? To accept their lot And to be happy in their toil This is a gift of God they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of their heart. And then later, in chapter 9, starting in verse 7, this is another one of those summary statements. He says, Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this vain or meaningless life. That God has given you under the sun All your meaningless or vain days Vaporous days For this is your lot in life And in your toilsome labor under the sun Whatever your hand finds to do Do it with all your might For in the realm of the dead Where you are going There is neither working nor planting Nor knowledge nor wisdom So one of the things that you see You can see comes up in that is That on one level, we're supposed to find meaning in what God has revealed about Himself. But the other thing is, is that if you really want to know where you have to find meaning and really embrace life and figure out where you really need to live with virtue in order to experience joy, Solomon will tell you, and it's these two things your lot and your toil. The situation and ordering and place of your life, your lot and your toil. That is, the work that you have that's, that's tough, it's, it's hard work. Like, life ain't easy. Life is full of problematic chaos and difficult work. Nobody is 100% happy in their job. People are like, well, Nick, you're a pastor. You must really love your job. And I'm like, are you insane? (laughs) Like, I like about 40% of my job. About 40% of my job I really like. And about 60% of it, like, come Lord Jesus and." like, kick me out of this work, right? It's really difficult, and it's, it's toil sometimes, even though I believe it's meaningful, right? Like, I, it's not—I'm not—if you say, Nick, is your job meaningful? I would be like, absolutely. How much of your job is meaningful? 100% of my job is meaningful. How much of your job is toil? Like, 86% of it, right? And because that's just how life is, and it doesn't do anybody any good, and it certainly doesn't produce any joy to pretend that's not true. Joyful people are people who experience joy in embracing the realities of the lot and toil of real life. Not in all the dispositional images of projected vanity. And I believe that's one of the reasons why our culture struggles so much with joy and, and depression. And you don't have to be a Christian or even a religious person to believe any of that stuff I just said. It's, it, it's true. It's just part of who we are as creatures. It's because you're made in God's image— but you don't even have to know you're made in God's image to find out that that's true But when you give yourself to your toil and your lot and you find joy in it Think about whether or not it was God that wanted you to know that Right, and so one of the ways we could talk about this oh, These are the passages we just read Is that, so the language of Ecclesiastes would say something like this God gives joy to the one who embraces his lot and toil So if, if you, in through faith in God Right? Remember, you have to start with faith. Remember that from the second slide? You got to start with faith. But from faith, if the way—so the question is, will you be like, well, I believe in Jesus. Okay, great. Great. I'm so glad you believe in Jesus. Okay, if you believe in Jesus, then you should also believe that the lot of your life and the toil of your life, whether it's work or relational or health problems or whatever— That they are meaningful in him And he can give you joy And pleasure And knowledge And wisdom In embracing that toil And that is the gift of God Do you believe that? And the answer is Less (laughs) Less But that's where you gotta get to And listen That's exactly what I mean When I say You have to embrace the ordinary Right? All the times you'll hear me say Over and over again It's—part of godliness is embracing the ordinary Embracing the life—the lifishness of life And I don't mean be typical I'm not—no Live greatly and beautifully in your ordinary life Because everybody's life is ordinary It's repetitive Right? But you can live greatly You don't have to live typically But you do have to live ordinarily in your lot and toil Or you can't be happy and you can't be godly Okay, so what I want to do in the following several minutes is I want to—I just want to go— so in the first three chapters, Solomon kind of lays this down. And you—if you've been here for five years, you've heard this all before, just separated by several years. Um, The rest of the book, he goes through a number of issues, a number of things in life, that uh, from one perspective are complete vanity. They're just vaporous nonsense. And yet when you are rooted in embracing your toil and lot and you're trusting God for who he is, they become meaningful. And in reckoning with those things, you actually begin to become the kind of creature God wants you to be if you combine it with faith. Look, at any time you say, I'm going to live strong in my toil and my lot, and I'm just going to be a good person, right? That you're going to be miserable. Okay? Remember, it's gracious striving. It's striving in the gift of God, in his free, favorous, gracious, loving, giving of everything that you need Through faith. You've got to believe that God is going to do this And in that, you embrace your lot and toil. Do you understand? And if you do that, and you reckon with these nine things, these are the particulars, these are the specifics Some of the specifics of reckoning with your toil and lot, and so—in doing so, growing in character, and in godliness, and in substance, and in joy. Okay? So, sorry, that was the first one. So, the first is—and this is all through Ecclesiastes—eat, drink, and find satisfaction in simple daily pleasures. Okay? Like, one of the reasons why a lot of Christians say grace at meals— right, they pray and thank God for their food, is because that ritual is meant to help them actually take a moment to actually be thankful that they have something to eat every single time. It's not meant to be a vain religious practice. It doesn't bless you. Your food doesn't get blessed, right? It is a spiritual ritual that says, hey, you're about to eat something and you don't deserve squat. And this is way better than you deserve. And here it is, and you're gonna enjoy it, and it's gonna be great, and that's the attitude that you should have, and that's true for drinking. And when it says drinking, it means wine in these passages, of course. But it, you could be drinking anything, right, that's good for you, I suppose. Uh, but like, th- the idea is, is that there's all these things in your life. There's, there's eating and drinking and bathing. I mean, like, you get in the shower and it's warm. It's like, oh, I feel so good. Like, Right! That's good to think that feels so good. It's good to enjoy the good feeling of it. It's good, like it's it's good to like get out of the shower and be singing some dumb song. That's all it's good to be happy. That's all good. right? You're downstairs and there's people there. It's good to just be cheerful. Just say something nice. That's all good. and if 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 it's part of reckoning with the, what's immediately there. Not looking past it to what you wish you were doing or what you're going to be doing tomorrow, or what you're worried about. and Not looking back at how big a failure you are or how you didn't use that decade of your life the way you wish you did or blah, 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 blah. It's about God is the God of the eternal present. Okay? What he cares about is right now. The presence of faith, the willingness to believe and embrace the meaning of this moment— in Christ. Like, according to his meaning in the toil and labor of it. Do you understand? That's it, man. And like, you've got to be—being in the moment is not some like Buddhist transcendental psychological nonsense. Like, it's—it's like just human life, and it's right here 3,000 years ago. That's before Buddhism, right? And like—okay, Two is accept life seasons and times, right? So chapter three is there's a time for everything, a time to live and a time to die, a time to gather, a time to scatter, a time to search and a time to give up searching, a time to do certain things. And like, it's not always time to do the same thing. It's not always time to get in a fight. Sometimes it's time to make peace. Sometimes it's time to get in a fight. Okay, sometimes it's time, right? Okay, so the idea here is this. We all, like, God gives us enough to know about him that we can have a theology. We can have a basic philosophy about life. But, like, our life isn't a philosophy, right? Our life is this winding story with all these events happening in it. And and a lot of that is changes in things like life stages and age. And they're all specific to those different times and places and situations. And so you've got to take what you know about God in faith— and you've got to learn to embrace the movement of your life It's times and it's seasons, right? So like Carl Jung in one of his books said Who was not a Christian um, Said, when I, when I counsel young people Usually their neuroses are wrapped up in failures of courage They know they have to become something And they're failing to become what they know they need to be And all their problems are wrapped up in that, right? When I talk to older people Their neuroses are always bound up in their unwillingness to die and to let go Right? Those are very different, both stress, both anxiety, but produced by fundamentally different seasons of life and what everybody struggles with in those seasons of life, right? And so Nicole was talking about learning how to be happy being a sleep-deprived mom with a husband, okay? That's increased irritability, decreased sleep. It's, you know, it's February in Wisconsin, a little hanging depression, right? And so she's got to figure out how to be cheerful and loving so she's going to need more self-control. She's going to need more perseverance. She's going to learn something as she tries to do the good in faith. She's going to learn something, knowledge, that will help feed into more self-control, more perseverance, which will hopefully lead to godliness and hopefully husbandly kindness. Or wifely kindness to love, right? And here's the thing. When she's 46, that's what she's going to be teaching other 28-year-old women. Not like the metaphysics of the ontological argument. She's going to be like, hey, yeah, I remember that, man. That was tough. This is how you step along, right? By embracing the seasons and times of life. The third is struggling with the key dramas of life. So in chapter 4— There's three things that Solomon discusses. The first is injustice and justice, that the world's full of it. So the question is, how should the world really be? The second is work and rest. Like, he's like, I see people who kill themselves because they're lazy. And then there's other people who work themselves to death. And both of them are vanity, right? And some people work themselves and they're successful because they envy the other person. And that's dumb. He's and he's like, what we need to do is find out how to work and rest, right? And then the third is friendship and family and— And bonding between people, right? So this is like, how can one person keep warm if he lies down alone? A cord of three strands isn't easily broken. If a person falls down, it has no one to help him up. Pity him, right? It's that kind of like, hey, relationships are like the most important thing. You see, there there are these, there are these things that aren't really seasons, but are the key dramas of life that we're actually engaged in, right? How should the world be What is the justice and injustice, and how do we relate to that? What do we do with our energy? Like how obsessed should we be with productivity, and how willing to be at leisure and at rest, and how does, like, how do we do that? How do we make that work? Listen, you ask almost any guy who has a family, like that's his biggest issue. When do I stop working and be a family man? When do I, when do I work harder to try to get ahead so I can provide for our future? Like it's, like that's all sort, it's like a major thing, right? And then who loves me and who do I love? Who really knows me and who don't I know? And like, am I alone in the world? And, or or like what's going on in all my relationships? Would, if I fell, would anybody be there to help me up? If somebody was to come against me and try to pull me apart, would I be like one little strand that would just snap? Or am I bound together with some other people in the same direction, and and that together we would hold? Right? Those are huge questions, and you have to grapple with them with passion. Right? And if you do, see, like I've talked to people recently earlier, like the big scandal now is like um, women being sexually assaulted, like in Hollywood and all that kind of stuff, and how that happens a lot. Okay, great. You see, we, every single one of us should grapple with that, right? i got three daughters and a boy, right? Like, I talk to women all the time and, and men all the time. And, like, if if you're a youth group leader, like, you need to grapple with that. And you'll know what to tell those girls in your junior high small group. Like, hey, don't let a guy treat you like this. And, like, this is experiences that I had. We need to be ready for this. This is who you are in Christ. And listen, when you see another guy treat a guy like like we would tell our guys, look, if you see a guy acting like a pirate instead of a protector, you need to step in. I remember talking to, I think it was sixth graders. So, like, for some reason at the Christian school in sixth grade— Boys start, like, slapping girls on the butts and, like, trying to touch their chests. And I'm not—I mean, I guess it's everywhere, probably, right? So I always get called in and give them a talk. And, I, and I'm like, listen, if you see one of these other guys trying to touch some girl like that, you tackle them and beat on them a little bit, right? <laughs> and so, like, you know, the, the, this principal hears about this, and she's like, that's, that's not what I would have said, Right? <laughs> And and I'm like, I'm like, either you're a pirate or you're a protector if you're a man. That's it. Those are your options Either you pillage or you protect Those are the only two things men are capable of And so if you don't teach men to be knights, they will be bandits Every one of them, okay? And so like men have to teach men to be protectors or they won't Right? And like We do that personally, like that's right here. It's close, near, humble, immediate. It's part of your lot and your toil, right? And if we did that, we wouldn't need to tweet about me-toos. Like that, that's beside the point, right? We need to get in here close, right? Okay, enough on that. Fourth is be reverent, right? So chapter—so this is like the life verse of everybody who doesn't like to pray. Because in Ecclesiastes 5, like 1 and 2, it says, God isn't God in heaven, right? And you're on earth, so let your words be few. Which is like great, because you're like, great. So prayers should be like, God, you're fantastic. Please help things to go well. Amen. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 3. Right? But that's not really the point, right? I mean, there is some point to that. I mean, if people are blathering on really long, just be like, hey, when you go home, read, read, read Ecclesiastes chapter five, right? But it's, it's that's not, the, the point is, is that you need to get in your head what God really is, okay? Because nobody, you, people don't naturally do this. People, blah, 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 God this, God that. I believe this, I believe, oh, oh God, you know, I'm a spiritual person, blah, 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 Okay. Very few people really get rooted in the fact That God is there And he is ultimately white-hot, pure, and just beauty And he loves the truth with an eternal passion And we are accountable to him and belong to him We were made for a purpose And he, like, very few, like Very few of us ever get anything like that in our hearts, and certainly not to the extent to which we could. And he's like, listen, you need to exist in the ever-present awe of the being of God and his reality. And if you do, it will change everything about your life. Literally, literally everything about your life. And it is not normal for people to do that. Not religious people, not irreligious people, not nobody people. And yet it's so absolutely critical. Or you can't really grapple with life. You'll never be able to embrace your lot, or really love your toil, or really get in there and know that God will give satisfaction in what is beautiful and good. You'll you'll still be all twisted around. Right? Sorry, I have to keep moving. Finding freedom from idolatry and wealth. There's this whole section where he's like, man, people just, they want wealth they don't have. They cheat and steal to get wealth they don't deserve. They do all these things. There's this one point where he, where he says something like this. Okay, I want you to think right now about if you have a bank account of any kind and they were all put together, how much money do you have? Okay, I want you to have a number in your head. How much money do you have right now in liquid or invested assets? Okay, does everybody have a number in their head? Okay. Now, what good does that do you right this second? Literally, like what's happening right now. Now you'd be like, "Well, I have money in the bank, and so I feel like maybe I'm secure." Okay, great. That's idolatry. That's good. Okay, um, but see, there's this verse where he says, "You know, all the money we accumulate, right? Like, what good is it but to feast our eyes upon it, <laughs> right? Like, it, re- it literally does nothing." And yet it's just kind of there, and yet somehow it comforts us. So it's drawing us into idolatry, but it's not really doing anything for us, right? And he's like, there's all these problems with wealth, and wealth is like one of the main idols of all human beings. Whether you've got a lot of wealth, whether you've got a little wealth, or whether you're in the middle and you're like trying to claw up a little further. For everybody, wealth is an issue. Different levels of wealth have different sub-idols, but the whole thing is a god small g, and it wants us all. And if you can't grapple with love of money, you will live in vanity instead of meaning. Six is that you know that wisdom is beyond you, but it's still worth knowing, right? There's this place where he says, you know what, you know what God has done from beginning to end? There's no way we can ever really know it, right? But then he says, but wisdom will save your life, And then he says, "Here's the one thing I really know about wisdom: God has. This is this is literally one of the verses. God has made mankind upright, and we have gone after many schemes. So his his final thought about wisdom in that chapter is, he's like, the problem with wisdom isn't that we don't know it; we're always chattering up wisdom. We just don't do it. Our hearts are not full of wisdom; they're full of scheming, and the two do not go together." And he says, what I noticed about humanity is is that we talk about loving wisdom, we talk about wanting wisdom, and yet what our hearts are full of is scheming, and that's what we do. And so for all of wisdom's beauty, what it ends up being is vanity to us because we don't really believe it because we don't stand in awe of God. We won't embrace our lot and toil. These all go together, right? Seventh is obey the king, which may sound weird because we don't have one right now, even though certain people are afraid that's going to happen. But what what that— Claim in chapter 8 really is about is this Is that the world has certain structures in it That you don't like and that may not serve you all the time But they're fundamentally necessary and you have to make peace with them Okay, so like you may not like the government But you, but you need a government or you have anarchy and that's not really good, right? You may not like the police, you may be like the police, right? Well, the, well, the problem is, is if there's no police, that's even worse, right you may not like the schools the stinking schools are reading bottle, right right well that's better than no schools and if you're like well we'll get rid of these schools and make new schools well pretty soon those schools will be like these schools and then they'll it'll all be the same thing right like there's all these things that are in- extraordinarily imperfect realities right and it's not just that it's customs of friendship and bondings of a relationship like marriage there's all these re- interrelations and structures and, and 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 societal like organizations and institutions and they're all they're all frankly necessary because we're not well-organized creatures, right? We actually not—we don't just need rules. We need a king, and we need lots of rules, and we need people who enforce those rules because that's what our character is like. And so what you have to do is, like, you got to make peace with all this stuff. you got to make peace with what marriage is and what it isn't and, and, and how you're going to interact with it. And you got to make peace with, with the police. Like, you may not like police, but, like, Solomon says, look, if justice isn't carried out swiftly, evil schemes enter the heart of people and they multiply. Like, you really do get a worse society, right? And so what you got to do is you got to try to help get the most noble people into these places and to grow in character so that you can, by binding together within those structures, you can push back injustice and minimize it as much. It'll always be there and it'll always be trying to creep back. And it's only the strength of virtue within these structures of strength that can push back relatively injustice, at least for a time and a generation. And if you're successful, you'll die and nobody will remember you. But it's worth doing anyway because it's good and it's your toil and it's your lot. Eight is don't be too narrow in your pursuits or obsessed with avoiding risks, right? Like life, life is really chaotic, okay? If, If you don't think life is chaotic, you're young. Life is full of chaos and risk. And there's this one psychologist that I like who says, he said, I never struggled with people coming to me who had anxiety problems. He said, what's always puzzled me is the number of human beings that don't have anxiety problems because the world is terrifying. It is those who don't have anxiety problems who are in denial. Right? Now, obviously, that's an overstatement. But what, but what, what Solomon is saying is, he says, look, just don't get too focused on one thing. Okay? Don't get so focused on work, that's all there is. Don't get so focused on your husband or your wife that that's all there is, right? Your kids, that that that's all there is, or your leisure, your hobby, that that's all there is, right? You need to diversify your life because stuff is going to let you down. A lot, right? And so you need to have a—you can't have just one friend, right? You need like five friends and like 30 okay friends. And you you need— You need to have your life spread out a little bit because life is chaotic, and you can't be like, well, I'm so terrified I'm not going to do anything. That doesn't work because then you've got nothing, right? So you've got to face the chaos and risk of the world, embrace your toil and your lot, and trust that God is going to carry you through. But you're also going to be wise. You've got to be smart, and the way to be smart in a chaotic world with risk is not to do nothing because of the risk, but to do a bunch of things because of the risk. Right? Right? And that's the way to live with wisdom, and you gotta do that And So the question is, is your life too narrow? And you have to grapple with that, right? And then last is, remember God in these things as soon as possible, right? Chapter 12 ends with, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come Old age is not when you're supposed to remember this stuff and grapple with it It's too late, right? It's supposed to be forming you right now You're supposed to be grappling with all these things in the toil and law of your real life Trusting God for who he is and in enjoying the momentary realities of your life Gaining also, in addition to joy and pleasure, wisdom and knowledge, it says That these come together Learning your meaning as a creature from the bottom up in the world Does that make sense? Now, we're going to take communion in just a second Which is essentially an immediate thing in our lot and toil that points to the absolute ultimate meaning of everything. Do you see the same things right here? In, in the, every ritual is this kind of thing. You, I could take you through with Jesus all nine of those things, right? He embraced—he embraced every moment with joy. That's why people—religious people who weren't happy, call him a drunkard and a whatever. He embraced the seasons of life, right? Only—of 33 years, only three of those years was in ministry. The other 30 years, he was busy being a kid and a teenager and a helper and a carpenter and living the normal seasons of human life together. You go through every single one of those. And Jesus embraced and performed every one of those perfectly. And because he performed every one of those perfectly, he could morally perform them on your behalf— And so if you looked at those nine things and and just the whole idea of embracing your toil and lot, and you've been raging against that your whole life, here's the good news. The good news is, is that Jesus performed that morally for you perfectly. And your sin in those things comes upon him in the cross. And his perfect work in those things is imputed or given to you So this is not a moral question if you trust Jesus, okay? If you, through faith, will reorient towards the meaning of what you are and what God is, okay, just in faith, this is no longer than a moral question. It's a being question, okay? It's about your being, and your character, and your—who you are, and your soul, and what you're becoming, and whether or not you will reorient towards the one who demonstrated fully all of your meaning called you after him, and invited you to embrace who you're meant to be by knowing that he's the one who saved you, he's leading out in front of you, and that all you have to do is follow him and embrace this minute, the toil and the lot that you have right now, the near, the close, the humble, but to embrace it with faith. And if you do, it will grow the strength of heart that will produce the virtue of joy, which always has the attending emotion of joy and happiness. Fathers, we come to this ordinance, and as we embrace what you give us, and as we try to turn our hearts to you, um, we pray that you you would give us joy and wisdom and knowledge in our lot and toil as we trust you and believe you, knowing that you are the one who accepted a lot and a toil that you did not require and that was not fitting to you. But you went way beneath us into a more difficult toil and a more humiliating lot, and you performed it perfectly. Help us to be inspired and moved and to put our trust in you. Holy Spirit, work in us now in Jesus' name.